Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are to our listeners. We are recording this program on an auspicious evening, I think. That's when we're all waiting in anticipation of this supposed Donald Trump presidential campaign announcement. You know, an extraordinary event in world history, of course. I think this one might indeed be landing, uh, sorry, landing with a bit more of a whimper than some of his previous announcements. But we'll get into all of that in a minute. Before we get into the day's news, I just wanted to acknowledge, I think this is going to be the last podcast that we're recording together before I head over to the Middle East, which I am very excited about because I am attending the World Cup in Qatar. I'm going to go to see USA versus Iran. I'm going to spend about five days in Doha, Qatar, and then I'm going to head over to the UAE, my old stomping ground, and spend five days in Dubai, and then another five days in Abu Dhabi, which was the city I lived for eight years. Some of the listeners might know that I lived there for a long time, and I was there until the pandemic. I was still living there when the pandemic started, and I just moved back here to the States a couple years ago, and this is the first time that I've gone back since the pandemic, so I'm really, really excited. I'm excited about the tournament. I'm excited to see lots of familiar sights. And uh, overall, you know, I kind of can't wait. I have never been over to that part of the world, Mr. Gunnison. So when you go over there and come back, you'll have to tell us all about it. But what I would be most excited about is going to see one of the world's largest tournaments take place, which is the World Cup. And, I, you know, I'm, I know you watch your European football uh, on the weekends, and I don't personally. However... Whenever there's an important match or a match that means something for American soccer, I will watch that match. So for the World Cup, we will be waking up whenever the ungodly hour of the game is. It's probably going to be in the morning. I saw that some games are going to be 5 a.m. Eastern time, I think. So we'll be waking up early and enjoying these games in bars across Washington, D.C. And it really is a whole thing where... Everybody, all of a sudden, every four years that we qualify, turns into a soccer fan here in the United States. Yeah, I mean, is it the biggest tournament in the world? I think it probably is. It's really just between the World Cup and the Olympics, right? And, you know, the argument for the Olympics would be as simple as the two, uh, you know, biggest global powers, China and the USA, maybe care a little bit more about the Olympics than they do the World Cup. But the World Cup is the event for almost everybody else, right? All of Europe, certainly South America and North America, like Latin America, parts of North America are generally massively into the sport. It's very popular in Africa. It's very popular in the Middle East. It's very popular in some parts of Asia and it's still growing and there's a lot of room to grow. The Asian countries are probably punching, you know, um, the least up to their weights for all the major countries in the world. So there's a huge growth opportunity there. But I think that with the Olympics also, you haven't got as much of a focus on these specific matches. You know, in the Olympics, the sports that matter to people around the world vary. There isn't these big headline events where the whole world stops and watches. World Cup semifinal, World Cup final, everyone is going to be watching the same match all at once. It's pretty extraordinary. I think that you might, the Olympics might not even really be the best comparison for what a World Cup final is like. You might even look at uh, India versus Pakistan cricket game as the next best thing and not anything that's happening in, in the Olympics. American football, John. America, oh yeah, sure. That, that's getting tons of viewers all over the world. I'm speaking very sarcastically there. Uh, <laughs> the World Cup final, it's going to have billions of people watching it. 
And I was watching this video, Jamie Carragher, who is uh, Liverpool and England uh, center back, trying to predict the tournament and who was going to make it to the knockout stages, how the kind of bracket was going to play out. And I saw that he had Argentina versus Brazil in the semifinal, and then a final of Argentina against Portugal, Lionel Messi against Cristiano Ronaldo. And it, it's such an enticing prospect. It, it really gets you excited for what's going to happen. And will never happen. They're both too old, and Ronaldo is potentially over the hill from yeah. uh, everything I've been seeing. I mean, who goes on Piers Morgan anymore? Oh, well, I mean, Piers Morgan's a huge media figure in the UK, and he's great at getting big figures to come and talk to him. And part of the way that he does it is he kind of uh, brown noses them outside of the interview context. He talks talks them up until they agree to come on. He did that with Trump, and he's been doing that with Ronaldo as well. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Ronaldo is definitely past his prime. He's not playing club football so much for Man United anymore. But the Portuguese national team is is very good. They have a lot of players, not just Ronaldo. They've got Three guys on the team that I support, uh, the Manchester City, you got Joao Cancelo, you got Ruben Diaz, you got Bernardo Silva. They've got one of the forwards for Liverpool. They have a ton of talent, so they can really make it far in the tournament. And then Argentina, who've got Messi, they've got a pretty good team. And a lot of people are even saying they're the favorites. I'm not really sure. I remember the last World Cup when it was only European teams in the uh, Final Four. So the South American teams, at least in recent times, were a bit of a step behind Europe. And as they've, you know, gone in the run up to the World Cup, they haven't been playing the European teams as much. They've been mostly been playing each other. So it's kind of hard to tell how they stack up against the European teams. But none of the European teams look unbeatable right now. France was, were the winners last time and they have a lot of weaknesses and there's a lot of questions about them as they head into this tournament. So it, it does feel pretty open and maybe one of those two big South American teams can can make it and uh, bring home a trophy this time. Well, as an American true to my roots, I promise you, I will only be watching the World Cup as long as the Americans are in the tournament. So that is that is my rooting interest. I look forward to the Americans coming out of their initial grouping on top and upsetting the declining English in multiple ways, declining in football, declining in world <laughs> stature. I'm looking forward to an upset. Yeah, the England national team were on a were on an upswing the last couple of tournaments. They were trending really positively, but Yet maybe they're not as good now as they were a year ago in the Euros. But if you are interested in watching the USA, I'll be doing that in person. I'll be in the stadium watching USA against Iran. Oh, look at you. Look yeah. at you. I'll be waking up at the you know, six AM to go to a bar, which in America is not normal cultural doings. <laughs> I, I don't think you're gonna have to wake up at six to watch that one. I think you can watch it about two PM. So Oh, that's good. Yeah, it, it it's not so bad the time. I'm rewatching it about nine. So I think you you can watch it at about 2 p.m. Okay, that that's good how they do that. Then I'll just leave work early and go to the bar, which doesn't <laughs> sound like a problem at all. You're guaranteed <laughs> at least three Team USA games, and they're all pretty pretty good ones. You know, playing against Iran, and that's exciting because I'm there. Our ally Iran, that's good. And then um, against England and Wales, you know, you've got some big stars in both teams for Wales, Gareth Bale. So, and it could be his last tournament. It's probably his last tournament. So. Lots, lots of uh, interesting mashups. The England Wales. I really don't want to continue talking about this, but the England. <laughs> I could talk about this for the whole episode. You know. <laughs> well, we don't want to lose our listeners. Yeah. The England Wales game, though, has to be a somewhat of a rivalry, even though you know it's probably Big Brother versus I don't know what the analogy would be, hmm. but not Big Brother. <laughs> yeah, I I think so. I mean, people in the UK are definitely looking forward to that one because. 
the constituent countries of the UK, it's only really England that consistently qualify. You don't see Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland in many of these big tournaments. So it's exciting for people from those places who get to watch them. And there's this kind of funny thing about how we know the UK is a country, but they play as these subnational constituent countries in these tournaments. During the Olympics, there was a Team GB. They did a United Team GB because they were hosting it in London. So there's been great Welsh footballers over the years, people like Ryan Giggs, Gareth Bale. Uh, So, you know, they've produced a lot of great talent. They don't always have an 11 that's good enough to to make into one of these big tournaments. But in the Euros in 2016, they made it to the semifinal, I think. And that was when Gareth Bale was at the peak of his powers. That was a huge, huge result for for Wales. So they're not really to be underestimated. You know, they could give the U.S. and even England a, a pretty good run. Let's transition into the topic of the night. And and I say that as I look at my phone and I see a quote from Mike Pence in his very bizarre, soft voice saying, he was my president and he was my friend, which is just hilarious to think that Donald Trump was Mike Pence's friend. So either Mike Pence is a sociopathic, pathological liar, or he has no friends and doesn't understand what a friend is, because at the end... Donald Trump was rooting for his mob to hang Mike Pence. Uh, So on that note, we should start this topic with our bet. So before we got on the show today, for everybody listening, we made a bet. And the bet is going to be plane tickets either to one another, or if we're living in a close proximity to each other, to an exotic land of our choosing. And the bet is over whether or not President Trump, former President Trump, is going to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. I, of course, having worked on the 2016 campaign, am bullish on President Trump uh, becoming the nominee. President Trump, that's what he might end up being, you know, given his um, health situation, right? <laughs> and, and I think it's Teflon Don is probably the best moniker or as the sobriquet that we can refer to Mr. Uh, Donald Trump as. And I and I think that's why he's going to be president. Uh, the primary, come out of the primary and, and then lose in the general. But John, you don't agree with me, do you? Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to take the bet that Donald Trump is not going to be the GOP nominee for president. I, I really feel as though the Trump thing is finally petering out. And I know that people like me have been saying this for a long time, but <laughs> I, I mean, that's part of the reason that I think it might happen because all the reasons why are piling up and they're becoming harder and harder and harder to deny or wave away. What I'm sensing more than anything else is just a sense of exhaustion. Because following Donald Trump has been this roller coaster. And because of all of the battles of the past few years, he's picked up quite a bit of wear and tear, quite a bit of baggage. And that's really, at this stage, all of what he offers. If you're voting for him, you're really only voting for the baggage. Because there isn't any kind of constructive vision at all. Maggie Haberman was saying that Donald Trump was going to run on a basis of revenge, personal revenge against his political rivals and so on. But what does this offer to any ordinary voter? Is this a compelling reason to support someone in a presidential campaign? He doesn't talk about the voters really very much at all anymore, especially starting with his defeat in 2020 and the meltdown that occurred afterwards. He spent the last two years just talking about his own grievances from the past. And I think that with the results of this week's election, Republicans who want to win are having as hard a time as ever 
denying his futility as a political candidate and denying the damage that he does to other Republican candidates. So I think there's really an interest in moving on. And I think that it's not only with the institutional players on the GOP side, but also with a lot of voters who don't really see a constructive vision and are just a bit tired. So, so there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. And you had mentioned that it does that the grievance politics doesn't play with your normal voters. Have you ever looked at the GOP primary electorate? That is not your group of normal voters. And uh, unfortunately for them, as the saying goes, or I guess you'd say, unfortunately for the institutional elites in the GOP, like the Murdochs who want to move on, uh, you can check out, but you can never leave from the Trump experience. So uh, my theory of the case is these issues have been mounting since 2016, since the Hollywood access tape, when you had the leaders of the RNC, media leaders, a bunch of different folks implore nominee at the time, Trump to drop out. That was a massive scandal right before the election. He was on tape admitting to and bragging about uh, sexual assault uh, of of different women. Um, So I think that to say that there's mounting evidence that the GOP wants to move on, that voters want to move on, um, these arguments have been made by countless media outlets. And I think the main problem here, I'll harken back to it, is the the GOP primary electorate is not normal. It's your most hardcore voters. And he has probably a a stranglehold on the largest faction of those voters. So right there, I think your argument kind of fizzles. Yeah. So we're talking about GOP primary voters and presidential politics. And I'm happy to take a look at GOP primary voters in presidential politics because that process has not yielded many people like Donald Trump. It's really just Donald Trump. (laughs) Uh, You know, when Donald Trump was nominated, the comparisons were often to go back to Barry Goldwater because there wasn't a lot of more recent precedent. And that was in 1964. If you look at the other candidates that have come out of the GOP primaries in recent cycles, we're talking about people like Bob Dole and Mitt Romney. Um, It's hardly the Trumpiest crop. And yes, the Trump thing did happen under strange circumstances when there was a very divided field, something that by pushing DeSantis as a consensus candidate, the GOP and their affiliated media are trying very hard to avoid. But uh, we have to kind of consider not just the one case of Trump, but also all the other evidence that we have about the way Republican Party voters might behave. And the voters are learning the lessons of the last couple election cycles. I mean, we look back at 2016 and we build everything up out of 2016 as if it's the the secret skeleton key to the universe. But 2016 is just one data point. A lot more has happened. And at this point, it's very hard to deny that Donald Trump is a losing candidate. And I think that the GOP voters are becoming aware of that. Not not based on today's Politico morning consult poll that had a poll that included DeSantis and Trump and a few others. Nobody else got over 5%. Uh, but DeSantis, I believe, got 33% and Trump got 47%. I think what we're seeing is, and this is after the election, 
it was taken of registered voters from the Republican Party. I think another thing here that is an interesting dynamic. So I don't think voters have learned anything. I don't think the GOP voters are willing to move past Donald Trump. However, if we're going to look at his headwinds, I think one thing that is interesting is he's not on Twitter. And Twitter has been used by Trump for years to drive earned media. So then that gets into the question, will Elon Musk reinstate Donald Trump to Twitter? I'm betting that he probably will. And that will be used as a tool to get more coverage from Trump. Will the media evolve in in how they cover Trump? Now, I don't think the likes of MSNBC or CNN or other mainstream outlets will evolve because there's just too much of a cash cow. However, I think that this is a peril for Trump in the primary. It There are reports that Rupert Murdoch has called Trump and told him that his outlets, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, will not be supporting his candidate. So the real question is whether or not he can then generate enough attention in the conservative sphere to drive out his voters, to which I say the people that Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson wanted to win in this uh, midterm election did nothing, and they got trounced. So then does Fox News really drive anything uh, in this primary? So John, I think the media aspect of things will play a big role, and I think that Trump is just too lucrative of a cash cow for the mainstream media outside of you know, Fox News to, to quit. And that's part of my bet. So Twitter mostly matters because of the way the media react to it, right? Most of the people that are on Twitter, the heavy Twitter users are not GOP primary voters. Those voters are more likely to be using Facebook as their primary social messaging, social network tool. The audience for Twitter, all the data shows us is generally young, urban, educated professionals mostly liberal, mostly Democratic voting. The reason why Trump's tweets became so influential was because of the way all of the media that use Twitter uh, reacted to them when they were published. A tweet from Trump would be a headline story in the external media. Because like I said, the sorts of people who are on Twitter and using it are often people in the class of journalists and, and writers and, and others who staff those institutions, those media institutions. Uh, anyone who spends time on Twitter can see how many of our prominent journalists are almost addicted to Twitter. So the question is then the other thing that you mentioned, which is, has the media learned a lesson? And I think the answer might be yes. I mean, we you know we can't talk about the media as a hive mind, but I'm taking a look at some of the biggest institutional media players, and I'm seeing how they're covering this story that Trump's going to make an announcement. I go to NewYorkTimes.com, and I don't see it anywhere on the homepage that Trump is going to announce a presidential run. I go to CNN, and I see the same thing. I don't see coverage of this supposed announcement that's coming in just 30 minutes from now. I think the media are playing the Trump thing a little bit differently than they did the first time around. Another thing that I'd say is that you're talking about how Trump is a cash cow for the media. And that's audience driven. That's on the demand side, right? Trump is a cash cow because people wanted to read about Trump and hear about Trump. You know, part of that is reinforced by the media because, you know, supply and demand of attention isn't just a one way, simplistic, 
exchange. It's mutually reinforcing. It's a little bit more circular. You can develop stuff on the demand side by helping accustom people to it and, and targeting and marketing it in an effective way. And that's a lot of what happens with the attention economy, right? You get people interested in something and you build up interest in something. You're, you're kind of building up your own demand. I think that, however, today, the audiences might not be there for the Trump stories. It's like I said, it's been years and years and years. And what I'm talking about is the sense of exhaustion and fatigue. And I think that this is the biggest factor that would hinder Trump from repeating the trick. Because the amount of media attention was reinforced by the interest in the public. And if the public is demonstrating a kind of exhaustion or fatigue, then the media coverage isn't going to be there to the same extent that it was last time. So all of this is sort of a house of cards that can collapse. It can, but I tell you right now, I know all me and my friends will be glued to the TV when Trump makes his announcement and if the media starts covering it again, because is he a racist? Yes. Is he xenophobic? Most definitely. Is he also extremely sexist? Of course, but he's very funny and and there's no way around it. He, he is an entertainer and even he's even funny when, when he doesn't try and be, um, I, I remember he had us all cracking up at the RNC when he posted the picture on Instagram, maybe even on Twitter, it was Cinco de Mayo, I think. And he posted a picture of a taco bowl at Trump tower and he has his two thumbs up next to the taco bowl. And he posts like best taco bowl ever. And it clearly looked like a horrible, horrible taco bowl. And there are just so many other instances of, you know, benign humor uh, to go in with the racism and everything else. But that just speaks to, I, I think that the Biden presidency has been boring and you've seen massive drops in interest and in subscribers for a lot of different outlets. So when Trump comes back, if an editor at one outlet says, oh, let's cover him. And then all of a sudden you see their subscriptions and clicks and everything else start to increase. I would have to assume considering there's a fiduciary responsibility and I'm sure that the economics drive a lot of the coverage, which is a strong criticism of the industry as a whole, that others will follow suit. And then pretty soon you won't be allowed to to not cover him with, with as much fervor. So, So John, my view is he is an entertainer and people ultimately want this, especially when he juxtaposed against the you know last two years of the Biden administration, which has been great, um, but has been relatively, quote unquote, boring for the folks that got into politics for the first time during the Trump administration. The second thing is, and we will have a totally entirely different show on this, he is going to have support from the loudest and craziest members of the U.S. House of Representatives. And they will get coverage. They will drive coverage of Capitol Hill. Whatever coverage there is of the House, it will go through Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Paul Gozar, Andy Biggs, Bob Good, and, and I'll stop there. But there's a handful of five or six of these people that are going to I said it last election uh, show, legislative terrorists is the term for these people. John Boehner described them acutely. My boss, Boehner, described as a former legislative terrorist. So that is to say that even if the news media doesn't want to cover him, Trump will be getting a ton of exposure and attention and support 
from the people that I just mentioned, and also Elise Stefanik, who already endorsed Trump in 2024, and she's the fourth most powerful member of the GOP House of Representatives. So that is to say, unlike in 2016, he has a ton of institutional support that will drive coverage of him. So I need to respond to both of your claims here because I take issue with both of them. So the first thing is that Trump is entertaining, funny, and so on. So I agree with you that he has been. And certainly when he ran for president the first time, I I thought it was hilarious at the beginning before it got so serious because it seemed like a joke campaign. I remember I was in Copenhagen, Denmark, when he announced he was running for president. My brother and I had met up there for like a 10-day holiday or something. And we were watching the speech on our hotel television. And we watched it again. And then we watched it a second time. We watched it a third time. And we were laughing hysterically. It was one of you know the funniest days that I remember just watching this ridiculous Donald Trump announcement speech. And it was largely because of the novelty factor. You know, Donald Trump didn't sound like the other candidates that were running for president, either that cycle or in the recent past which had been very professionalized. We had Barack Obama against Mitt Romney. You know, it had been a while since the days of Ross Perot. We had these very professionalized candidates. And the Trump thing sounded so wild, it was hard to believe it was even real. And that was what made it so extraordinary and absurd, which is what made it funny. But in today's world, the Donald Trump style of politics has become so normalized and has been employed by so many candidates running for office uh, across the country, whether for governor, whether for House and Senate. It's becoming almost the normal mode of politics for much of the Republican Party. Uh, and that has taken away all of the novelty value from it, which was where the humor was based. I can't really remember the last time that Donald Trump said something really very funny or interesting. He's become very repetitive and rather boring. Now, I want to talk about the other aspect that he raised, which is that support from loud, angry people in the Republican House caucus is a big factor that will help Trump become the GOP nominee. Now, I I don't agree with you about this really at all. I don't think that association with those sorts of characters is a positive for Trump. And if you remember the 2016 primary cycle, in fact, those sorts of people were against Trump. And that might have been something that helped him then. Those sorts of people, the ones that you're naming, the Jim Jordans and Marjorie Taylor Greens and so on, these are some of the most unpopular people in the United States. These people are very, very disliked. If you look at the approval rating for the U.S. Congress as a whole, it's quite low. And if you ask voters what they hate about the U.S. Congress, they say it's gridlock and antagonistic partisan polarization. These people are the avatars of all of those problems. And it was probably very beneficial for Trump that the first time he ran for president, they had all endorsed other people and were activating against him. I think generally Ted Cruz was one of the popular choices among these sorts. And the, the negativity of those associations was something that probably damaged Cruz and definitely helped Trump. Trump at the time didn't really have people in Washington that were supporting him. He only had a couple early endorsements from people in the U.S. Congress. And they weren't from the sorts of people you're talking about. They were from, I think Chris Collins was his first endorser on the House side. And then Jeff Sessions was on the Senate side. Jeff Sessions is one of these people. He was one of the Freedom Caucus leaders in the Senate. 
Well, I mean, the Senate doesn't exactly have like a Freedom Caucus type dynamic. Ted Cruz created the Freedom Caucus, John. It does have a Freedom Caucus dynamic in that, at least when I was, you know, working in the House and the Freedom Caucus was created, there was close collaboration between these folks in the Senate and the folks in the House. The, the folks in the House would, you know, in in a lot of cases, defer uh, to the folks in the Senate. And then to say that, you know, Jeff Sessions wasn't one of these Freedom Caucus folks, his top policy advisor was Stephen Miller for for people. And I mean, he he was acerbic. He was um, pretty hateful. Um, he was hated by the left. He he was one of these people. And Mo Brooks was another early endorser who's a Freedom Caucus guy. Oh, sure. I take your point on Mo Brooks. But um, lo- yeah, lots of these offices have weird staffers. But I'm talking about what's visible to the public. So if you turn on a television, you see people screaming in Congress. It's not Jeff Sessions that you're seeing. It's, you know, the Jim Jordans and so on. And I agree that Ted Cruz did sort of introduce this style a little bit on the Senate side. And when he started doing so, it was considered very unusual for the Senate and and led to rebuke, bipartisan rebuke for that kind of behavior. I'm not really aware of Sessions, you know, screaming. And then he finished second in the Republican, and then Ted Cruz finished second in the Republican primary to Donald Trump and would have won without Trump running. Yeah, but I mean, we're talking about Trump running in that lane as a Cruz. And (laughs) I mean- the dynamics that led to him winning are not the ones this time. That's what I'm saying. Him being this outsider candidate who didn't have the support of people in Washington that bothered so much of the American public, including much of that primary electorate. I mean, that's not going to be the dynamic this time if he does have associations with these sorts of people that annoy people so much. You think it was a big positive that Cruz was considered, you know, a loud, annoying, angry person in Congress? I don't know. I don't think so. Not really. It most certainly was in the Republican primary. He literally would have won running away with it. If Trump didn't, if Trump wasn't there, he would have won 60, 70 percent of the vote in, in 2016. There would have been, you know, no, no viable challenger. It would have been wrapped up early. Maybe we would have had President Hillary Clinton. I don't know. I don't know how that all turns out if, if Cruz wins. I kind of wonder if some of the way that you think that combative members of Congress are perceived by the broader public, including the primary electorate, might be colored a little bit by your close association with that institution. (laughs) (laughs) I think that the people in broader America don't necessarily see almost any member of Congress as an avatar of their anger. They're, They're happy to see those kinds of broadsides sometimes coming from outside the tent. But the angry yelling nutcases in Congress aren't people that they necessarily empathize with. They're considered really just a big part of the problem, largely. I I think that, John, this is an interesting argument. And, you know, we try not to disparage folks too much. But as of September 27th, 2022, according to an NBC News poll, 61% of the Republican electorate, so these folks are the folks that I am talking about, do not believe that President Biden won the 2020 election. Uh, So these are not normal folks. The, these are folks that uh, tends to believe in conspiracy theories. These are folks that, um, you know, you're, you're not going to encounter John at a diner, very unlikely to encounter uh, in, in a diner in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, but that is all to say that the folks that you're talking about, Jim Jordan, he can't get primaried. Uh, he, he, if he did get primaried, he'd, he'd crush 
the primary challenger. Same with Marjorie Taylor Greene. We just went through this in this election cycle. That is to say that uh, there are probably, you know, 40 members of the House and the House Freedom Caucus that are as extreme as it gets that cannot be primaried from a sensible position. And that is 40 districts. That is a tenth of the country. And you got to remember that ultimately voting in a primary is half of the voters. So that is a significant uh, large swath. And if it if Trump does get in there, um, it's also going to be other leaders who tie themselves to President Trump. It would be very interesting to see, for example, what Kevin McCarthy does. Uh, President Trump has been early and vocal in endorsing him for Speaker of the House in 2024, uh, or sorry, in, in 2023. And he, he's come to McCarthy's aid, and that's one of the larger reasons why McCarthy doesn't really face too much of a viable challenge, even if he won't become speaker. So there are a lot of chits that that Trump can call in. And I wouldn't be surprised if the 40 Freedom Caucus members turned into 80, 100, 120. Uh, The other theory of the case, Mr. Gunnison, is I I don't think Ron DeSantis is going to run because if he does run, Trump will make a fool of him. And this plays into the entertainment part of things. There will be a large field and I think it'll be larger if there's a Trump DeSantis head up because somebody thinks they can probably squeak by in a different lane. But off the top of my head, and I'm probably missing some other very boring people who are going to announce for Congress uh, for president on the Republican Party side. Just imagine a debate stage with Donald Trump in the middle because of the polling next to the scintillating Mike Pence, the um, gregarious and very personable uh, Mike Pompeo. The not very odd at all, Josh Hawley, Christy Nome, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Ted Cruz, we already saw that. He is going to emasculate these people. He is going to humiliate them. He's going to make up rumors that everybody will be talking about. Oh my God, did you hear what he said about Tim Scott's father assassinating so-and-so? We've seen this again and again and again. And when other politicians are head up on a stage against Donald Trump and they try and play with the fire that Donald Trump brings, they just look forced and kind of scripted and a fish out of water. So so I think that even if every other thing that I brought up is wrong, he will get media attention and it'll start the coverage cycle again if he makes it to the debates. All right. So lots of things that I need to respond to here. Uh, Lots of points that you're making that I, again, take issue with. So let's start with the last thing that you described, Donald Trump's debate performance and his persona on the stage. So the person that you described was Donald Trump six years ago. And by the time this all rolls around, seven years ago, did you see Donald Trump in the first presidential debate against Joe Biden two years ago? Was that the one that he looked like he was on cocaine because he was interrupting the whole time? He was uh, dissembling on stage. Was that the same person that you remember from the 2015 primaries? Yes. Yes. He was interrupting everybody. And that's why it worked. He was the only one that got airtime in in a stage of 12 people because he'd cut them off. You saw the way that the public reacted to that debate performance, right? Yes. All the polling and everything after that debate. Uh, The thing was, in the 2016 primaries, Trump was acting a bit juvenile and brash and interrupting, but he was landing some kind of talking points here and there. I mean, there are famous talking points from that cycle. You know, when he blamed the Bushes for September 11th and 
when he said that Hillary Clinton should be in jail. There are these infamous moments from those debates. Ted Cruz's father assassinated John F. Kennedy. I don't think he said that in a debate. But oh, okay. There are moments from those debates. You don't remember moments from those in the 2020 debate cycle because he performed so poorly. That's different, he though. didn't have, I mean, he's just not a peak performer. And if you look at him in rallies and in interviews these days, like he's clearly lost a lot of uh, what he had before as a presenter, as a performer. The other thing is the theory that you said that someone thinks that they could squeak by if Trump and DeSantis are cannibalizing support. I mean, that doesn't really make very much sense just mathematically, because if there are two popular candidates running against each other, to, you don't squeak, you can't win by squeaking by them. You have to have more votes than they do. <laughs> so, I mean, what is the actual theory there? I, I'm not really sure. I think there is a lot of pressure on DeSantis to run. I'm very confident that the, he will run. And I think that they're, like I said on the last program and now again, that they, re, the institutional networks around the GOP, Fox News and kind of the Republican Party, they have learned lessons from 2016 and they saw what a divided field meant. And they are going to try as hard as they can to avoid that. And even if other people run, that Pompeo or people like that, I mean, these people generally don't seem like they're going to be in a good place to get much support. And there is so much attention around DeSantis that he's going to be the larger uh, figure in a better position to take on Trump than anybody, any single candidate was in 2016. So the last thing that I need to address is what you're saying about the number of Republicans who are denying the 2020 election results. So Justin, you're familiar with the concept, the seven stages of grief, right? You, you know all about this, right? So the second stage of grief is denial. I think you're stuck in denial, you and President Trump right now. <laughs> so many Republicans were very reluctant to admit that their strategy was a complete failure. And so they've had a two-year window to try to deal with that. And many of them you know, were compelled to embrace these kinds of theories because it was it made it much easier for them. They didn't have to reckon with the fact that the way they'd been running politics for the last several years, you know, drove their party into the ground. And so this is part of why these theories were so appealing. You don't have to admit that you lost at all if you think that, you know, the election was stolen and was fraudulent. You could say, oh, no, we really won. Our strategy worked. We were, we were popular. We weren't unpopular. They were actually very unpopular. And this election cycle is proving that beyond anybody's ability to deny when, again, we talked about this in the previous program, but if you run down the list of candidates who were election deniers, MAGA people who ran on the same ballots as candidates who weren't, who were also Republicans, they all ran far behind. And people have really noticed this. And we're also seeing that many of these candidates who were themselves election deniers in many cases are conceding. The whole election denial thing is being, it's petering out. It's petering out. We're not seeing enthusiasm for election denial, even from people like Doug Mastriano, who participated in the January 6th attack. And, you know, some of these conspiracy theories just get boring after a long time. Like what I was saying before, novelty is such a huge part of this whole Trump experience. And the theories about Hillary Clinton that he was pushing back in 2016 were really exciting for, for many people. But we stopped hearing about those theories because... Uh, they were not interesting to talk about. That's where we're going to be with the election denial thing.
But Trump is insisting on continuing to talk about it, and that's going to damage him. And I just want to say overall, and this is kind of my overall view of this whole conversation is, I can sometimes get a bit frustrated with a pattern of looking at the past and expecting it to exactly repeat itself, that a precedent is almost uh, scientific. But history and current events are much, much more complex than that. And things happen differently much more often than they happen exactly the same way. And that's something we need to remember. I think my first point about you know somebody thinking they can squeak up the middle is consistent with something you say ad nauseum and is true. The initial front runner a lot of the times in these primaries, whether it be Chris Christie or Jeb Bush, and, and there's a whole list of them, never ultimately turn out to be or very rarely turn out to be the nominee. So anybody looking at a tr- Trump DeSantis election, and you have to realize, John, these people are touched, right? Um, anybody running for president that thinks they can be president is not a normal person. So they look at this from the prism and the spectrum that probably isn't that grounded and is looking at things in the most rosy of glasses. So through a theoretical Trump-DeSantis matchup, they say both go negative against each other and I can carve out a lane that resonates with the primary electorate because like John is saying, these people aren't all crazy. They have principles. They have values. Uh, they're not extremists. And, and they will be turned off by the spectacle that is a DeSantis-Trump mudslinging event. Um, I say no way. But Mike Pence is carving out his lane, which is a complete loser in a general election. But he is hugging the Supreme Court and the Dobbs decision. And he is hugging, um, you know, religious right type of policies right now because that's his lane. Mike Pompeo will run on the conservative lane and the hawk lane, right? Uh, and, and there are others, and they'll all try and justify carving out their own lane. They'll all probably get a couple percent point support. Um, but that doesn't mean that they won't come out and, and try and run. And we, and we heard from Liz Smith, the Democrat. We asked her, Liz, how does Mayor Pete, now Secretary Pete, change to get more black voters? And the way that she looks at it is exactly how these campaign consultants are going to look at it. Well, you know, if he just wins a couple of states and gets some momentum, that's going to solve all his problems. And I'm paraphrasing, but that's ultimately what it was. Uh, And the same thing goes for the Republican primary and the consultants that exist there. So that's my theory of the case with people looking at this and everybody jumping in a crowded field. Chaos is a ladder to use a line from Littlefinger in Game of Thrones, because there is some truth to that. That's the the most important thing uh, that I wanted to respond to. I'm forgetting your other points, but ultimately it comes back to this. And, and I've said it a couple times. I don't want to be repetitive. The primary electorate in Kansas for a Republican, in uh, Oklahoma for a Republican, in Alabama, in Arkansas, in a lot of these different states is not normal. It, it, it is... It is uh, the education levels in these primaries vary, right? The, the the most educated states are Washington, D.C., Massachusetts, you know, New Hampshire's up there, Vermont's up there, New Jersey's up there. It's a lot of blue states, and I think the top red one is Nebraska. These these primary voters are different, and fundamentally, so, so they have a different set of values than than you would call normal, John. So, so that's point A. Point B, though, 
What wins primaries, especially in states, is momentum and energy. And regardless of anything else, Trump still has a core at least 35% within the party, which is starting out higher than anybody else. And these 35% are the most fervent. They will walk over glass to vote for this person. I saw in the in the poll that I just mentioned, 47% of to, out, out uh, November 10th, 47% said they'd vote for Trump. In the same poll, 64% said he probably should not or definitely should not run for president. But yet 47% of that poll will vote for him. So that is just to say that the other bet on Trump is he will have folks out there knocking doors, persuading friends and family or attempting to. Um, and all that it takes is for him to win a couple early states, for him to have that core support galvanized, energized, uh, and and that's all he needs to squeak through a primary is you know, 45, 50% at most. So we have to make a distinction between a divided field of candidates and a divided field of voters because those have different outcomes. So I agree that a lot of these candidates are determined to run for president, people who don't have a moonshot chance of being elected president. I mean, you mentioned Mike Pompeo wants to run on uh, uh, on the Hawk Lane. I mean, it's going to be that's a pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be. I, I agree that that's what he wants to do, but it's a difficult sell when the only thing that you're associated with in your entire career is that you made a deal to hand Afghanistan over to the Taliban. That makes and it, he's going to get killed for it. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, Mike Pence. He's determined to run for president. It's not clear if there's going to be much of a constituency for him for various reasons. Trump would just say the most personal shit too. Chris Christie is acting like he wants to run for president. No. I think that a lot of the yeah he he, he 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 might run. He might run. He's trying to. That's these people are sick. Yeah, I mean, like you said, to run for president, you have to have something a little bit wrong with you, <laughs> and that goes for even people that we all like and admire. Uh, but. <laughs> But uh, the thing is, there's a difference between a divided field of candidates and a divided field of voters. So if these people run and get 0% support and drop out before New Hampshire, it doesn't really matter that much. If the voters consolidate, then we're going to have a nominee without having to worry about these sorts of marginal figures. The other thing that I want to point out is everything you said about primary voters I completely agree as it applies to primary voters in congressional primaries, right? So in the congressional primaries, it's often just the activists who turn out, right? I mean, even people who are really engaged in politics, do you know what day and month the primary election for your U.S. House seat is happening? Like only people who are extraordinarily engaged are often even aware that these events are on the horizon. And that's how activists can get candidates nominated in GOP and Democratic primaries who don't necessarily reflect the overall balance of their district. I mean, Ocasio won with a, such a small number of votes in a low turnout primary against um, a very prominent member of Congress, Joe Crowley. We saw how David Brad beat Eric Cantor with a really small turnout primary. And then in the last cycle, people like uh, Harara Butler, she lost to some strange activist candidate. Joe Kent, he's crazy. Yeah, presidential primaries are fundamentally different because these are such widely publicized affairs and do drive a lot more interest, awareness, and turnout. And that is part of why Trump's nomination was so unusual. 
because there are more, as you described, the normal people who are participating in presidential primaries. And that's why, for example, in the 2012 election cycle, even though polling saw strange bubbles of support for strange candidates like Herman Cain, eventually, when the voting started, there was kind of a consolidation around Mitt Romney. We had normal people turning out to vote in these primaries. So I think that in this upcoming primary, you know, it's not only going to be the Trump activists, the election deniers, the internet incels who are showing up to vote. It's also going to be lots of normal people who aren't spending their entire lives plugged into online politics. We have to remember the difference between presidential primaries and congressional primaries, right? I totally understand what you're saying. And I somewhat uh, agree with it. But I, I will say, just looking at the numbers um, that, that I'm looking at from the 2016 presidential primary on a, you know, it's a presidential year. So obviously, you're going to have more interest like you had mentioned. In New Hampshire, there was, um, it's roughly two to one, to make your point. But to ultimately win one of these primaries, if you have, you know, five, 10 people in the field, even if they're only getting, you know, 1%, you still don't need to get over 50%. And ultimately, I just think that Trump has such a strong base that he is starting from. And he has a lot of policy accomplishments that he can tout, which I think are policy failures, but the the primary voters will enjoy them. Um, and I, my theory of the case is Ron DeSantis doesn't run. So we also have to remember that everything I am saying hinges upon that. Now, why? Why, Justin? Why would you say that Ron DeSantis isn't going to run? Because he would be the dumbest person in America to run straight up against Donald Trump in a primary in 2024 if he thinks he has a chance of being president. If he were to run against Donald Trump in a primary in 2024, he has 0% chance to win the general election because Trump will will most simply, if he's willing to do a coup attempt because he didn't win the general election, you don't think he's willing to tell his voters not to support Ron DeSantis? All Ron DeSantis needs to lose is 5 to 10% of the Republican electorate, which Trump probably has at least that much in hardcore cultist support to never become president. And these people won't forget. They're just not going to turn out. So that's my whole theory of the case rests upon no Trump uh, DeSantis head up. And, and if there is, the media will be up to their old tricks. I mean, th- this theory of the case is such a clear contradiction with everything that you said the last time <laughs> it was your turn to speak in this conversation. Because we we're just talking about how all these people run for president without a realistic chance of winning even a primary, let alone a general election because they have a a kind of confidence in their own ability that often is not grounded in reality. So you're saying that this candidate, however, is completely different from all the other ones. And he's so savvy that he thinks that this risk to how he might compete in a general election would be the reason that he doesn't even bother running in a primary, even while people like Pompeo and Pence and Christie are lining up to do so. That doesn't make very much sense to me. No, no, John. I think so little of Ron DeSantis that I think he's what would what would the conservatives like Charlie uh, Charlie Kirk call him a soy boy latte drinking? Um, he's a fraud, uh, and and I and I think it's nothing other than sure he has this grandiose view of himself. 
he'll you know stay governor um, there in that that state. Um, but he's afraid. I, I think that he's legitimately afraid. And instead of being overtaken by narcissism, there's some you know deep psychological issues going on in that head, uh, rattling around in that empty brain of his um, that that will ultimately prevent him from going head up. Uh, against Donald Trump. So I, I think it's ultimately, we know he's gripped by paranoia. And, and I think that this just plays into it. We, we have Mark Caputo on and he told us this. We, we've acknowledged that many of these candidates who don't have a great case for running a presidential election are going to line up to do so based on their own unnatural confidence in their abilities. DeSantis has that and he has more because he has a huge machine lined up behind him. He's got a huge amount of right-wing media, including the most powerful institutions in right-wing media that are dedicated to pushing his candidacy. And he's got most of the Republican Party's own institutional network also lined up behind him. There's going to be so much pressure on him to run. And like all these other politicians, he's someone who thinks so highly of himself that it's almost impossible to imagine him not doing so. Now, like Chris Christie, there could be some scandals that break in the years since that damage him or the years you know, after now that damage him as a candidate. But as of today, it's really hard to imagine him not running. And I think that he certainly has a better chance to take on Trump and beat him head on than any of the other contenders that we've seen yet on the Republican side. The dynamics are different for all the reasons that I've been talking about. I hear you. I think that he's been so carefully manicured and presented to the public ultimately. And and we know from having a, a Florida reporter on from NBC News that he really only confides in his wife. Uh, so we don't know what's running through his wife's mind. But I can tell you right now, he's not probably listening to any of these conservative consultants. He understands that the political media on the right is going to be there behind him you know, in 2026 and 2028, um, when, when he may run and having Fox news behind him doesn't mean he has the whole ecosystem behind him because you've got to remember Steve Bannon and these conspiracy theorists are going to be flooding the internet and just saying deranged things. And dude, you have to be really, really nuts to want to get up there and and face Trump one-on-one with all the crazy stuff he's going to say. Trump's already been alluding to it. So, John, enough hypotheticals. We just both listened to he's back in rare form. Um, we just listened to Trump's announcement speech at nine. Uh, I think it was nine twenty three ish Eastern time. He announced I am running for president of the United States. So I just want to very quickly uh, give a short recap of what Trump did. And now when I say this, folks, you need to realize it. Trump is the reason that made me look introspectively at myself, at my values, and ultimately burn down my professional career network and switch political parties. So I have nothing but hatred for this man, to be honest. Never mind that I am concerned that he is going to ultimately ruin our country, win, lose, or draw in, in the next election. So just to review uh, Trump's speech here, you know, I'm no fan of his. But ultimately, I do think the election results really came in and the fact that he endorsed basically everybody that lost uh, and it influenced the way that he made this announcement because we got the rare teleprompter Trump. And I do not want to sound like the media saying, oh, if 
Trump can just stay on teleprompter, he'll be presidential because we know that that's all baloney. But basically what he did in this speech and what he was trying to do was act dignified in a way. And he framed this really as a general election speech from the parts that John and I were able to see. Yes, he did reference China potentially corrupting the 2020 election result, but the focus of the speech was more on his alleged accomplishments. Regardless if they're true or not, they are going to be eaten up by the electorate because I I find it very difficult for folks running against President Trump to blame him for his accomplishments. But what he focused on was his China policy. He he went into the economy that he served over that was great before COVID. He went into attacks on President Biden because of Afghanistan. He went in on liberals taking too much concern for the climate and caring more about climate change than they care about nuclear weapons, which is a direct kind of link to Tucker Carlson. Uh, So I I think that this speech, John, and I'll kick it to you to get your thoughts, was really focused on him elevating himself above the petty revenge type uh, that of character that we've come to know him as, broaden his appeal, and also refocus on a general election because he just wants to will it so that Ron DeSantis is not into this race. Yeah, so Justin, you sound quite a bit like Van Jones talking about how today is the day that Donald Trump finally became presidential. And I've always found it quite ludicrous. You know, Donald Trump might once in a while try to present himself in a dignified way, but it's not possible at this point in his life and career for him ever to acquire anything resembling dignity, given all that we know about him, all that everybody knows about him. It was also not really dignified when you consider how inaccurate all of the claims in the speech were. For example, the claim about Afghanistan. I mean, anyone who knows anything about Donald Trump's Afghanistan policy knows that it's ludicrous for Trump to criticize the hasty withdrawal of American troops in the summer of 2021 when Trump himself signed an executive order in the last month of his presidency asking that all American troops immediately depart the country and withdraw a plan that was much more aggressive and would have been even more destabilizing. And the last part of this speech that we will analyze here is ultimately MSNBC was carrying it in and out. CNN was carrying it full bore and Fox News carried it, I think, all the way through. Uh, So that is to say the man is back. The media is all over it. He will get significant portions of coverage, and that alone may be enough uh, to scare others away. So for a first speech, I would say it was what Trump wanted to accomplish. He, he did sound a little bit bored. However, um, I, I think that he was calling out to making a siren call, for example, uh, to his long-lost loves of Tucker Carlson, of Sean Hannity of the major shows on Fox News, of OAN and Newsmax and whatever of those outlets still exist, of the folks online who are conspiracy theorists, of the pundits at Town Hall and Breitbart, he he was throwing them red meat to position his alleged accomplishments in a way that's going to be very tough for politicians to attack him on. They're going to attack him on electability. um, And will that resonate in a GOP primary? I'm not sure. 
But I, I think at the end of the day, what we saw from Trump here is a blueprint for his campaign that will unfold. His blueprint is that his advisors, like the last time, want to keep him viewed as being dignified, which, like John said, is going to be impossible. They also want him to run on his accomplishments, and they want him to really hold his fire against his opponents until they're announced, until they're clear, Um, and then he will begin to turn into a different type of Trump. But ultimately, if you're an advisor for Trump tonight, you have to be happy with what you saw. He stuck to the script largely uh, and, and accomplished I think enough to fire up the insane part of the GOP base, which plays a larger part of the primary electorate in a presidential election than Mr. John Gunnison is willing to acknowledge. Well, I mean, I'm again at a loss as to what the real theory is here. For one thing, we make an enormous mistake when we ever look at any comment or speech by this person and extrapolate about how he's going to continue to behave over the next weeks, months and years. I mean, this is a person who facilitates wildly between these attempts at dignity, these ludicrous attempts at dignity, and the most deranged, insane, off-the-cuff shouting and conspiracy mongering that you'll ever see. We actually did see quite a bit of the conspiracy mongering tonight, though. But you can't look at anything he says or anything that he does as a predictor for how he's going to behave tomorrow. And this is part of why he managed to control the news cycle as well as he did, because he was always acting in a way that was unpredictable. So if the theory about his political success is based on anything like that, then I'm not sure that um, I agree with you that we should look at this speech as a predictor for how he's going to run and it being a good sign. I think it's really neither of those things. No. Well, number one, it was unpredictable the, the way that he ultimately came out and stuck to the teleprompter despite, you know, his impulses trying to pull him off. Number two, John, I said that this was a blueprint for how his consultants and advisors want him to run. There's a 0% chance that he sticks to this. However, I I think broadly speaking, when he goes into his uh, quiver to pull out his arrows, what we are going to see is a lot of reliance on the four years that he was in office and the alleged accomplishments, and that's going to make it a lot tougher for folks like Mike Pompeo, for folks like Mike Pence, uh, for folks that agree with the policies that Trump actually put into place to attack him. They're going to have to attack him on electability and character. And we've seen this show, John. It does not work in a Republican primary. So I just, now that he actually has alleged um, you know, accomplishments that the base will eat up. I think he's that much more difficult. And we know that he's going to blame um, Mike Pompeo on the Afghanistan withdrawal and say something humiliating about the photo of him with the Taliban. And we know that he's going to say some crazy, truly crazy shit about Mike Pence that might be true. I'm looking forward to it. The idea that he's got this policy record to run on is, again, we're just getting into some silly domain here because his policy record is so small <laughs> I, if you take a look at the legislative achievements of that congress you know the time that he was in office and you really just see almost nothing um you know the, the biggest agenda item that they were trying to pursue the health care reform completely collapsed they they lower the corporation tax and then that was just about it his biggest policy legacy is only through the uh, proxy of the Supreme Court, right? 
I mean, that's his biggest policy legacy. Uh, decisions that are taken by the Supreme Court, you know, right-wing supermajority that he helped put into office. But on legislative and executive action, you just don't really see a whole lot there. It's a very paltry policy legacy, especially compared to any of the other recent presidents. He has plenty to run on, though, John. If you for the since Reagan, they, they've basically been running on tax cuts, which you mentioned, judges, which you mentioned, deregulation, which I'm sure there's a number of like thousands of of regulations that were cut. Um, instantly because we were, you know, researching that stuff at the RNC to, to figure out what they were going to do uh, first. And there, so there's a, a gaudy number to put in there. And then to, to put his new spin on things, he's going to talk about wars and how he didn't get us into any wars and how Biden has gotten us into this Ukraine uh, situation. You know, he's going to paint things dishonestly, but, but this is what is ultimately going to happen. Um, so, and finally, he is the ultimate culture warrior in the eyes of these primary voters. So, so I think that he does have a bedrock of quote unquote accomplishments that he can tout out there and will help act as an armor and buttress him. You know, the thing is like, I, I understand that you're trying to, as they say, steel man the case for this person as a political candidate. But the problem is that you get to a point with someone where there's no way that that person can build credibility or a successful political profile. And I think that that's where we're at with him. I mean, there's just so much baggage. There's so much baggage. And he's so well known as a figure that there's not a whole lot of room left to redefine him. And almost all of what's known about him publicly is extremely negative. I mean, you know, we can try our best as PR consultants to rebuild the image or reframe the image around anybody. But I mean, good luck trying to stage the comeback of Harvey Weinstein. Or Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> or, yeah, or Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, you can't work that magic on just anybody. There are some people who have run the course of their career and are at the end of the line. <laughs> Facebook is not going to be rebranded into Meta and people loving Meta. (laughs) Yeah, there's just what. (laughs) Very good point, John. There's only so much you can do with a bag of dog shit. It's still a bag of dog shit. Um, Sorry to to maybe, um, but anyways, I just wanted to point out this tweet. And unfortunately, I've had beers with this man at Tortilla Coast, and he was advocating for somebody who feloniously beat their wife. Uh, former Panthers player of of the Carolina Panthers. I know what you're talking Mick, about. Mick, yeah. <laughs> this is Mick Mulvaney. Uh, we got in an argument about whether or not the our, Panthers our, our special envoy this. for Northern Ireland. <laughs> whether or not the the Panthers uh, football team should support. Uh, I think it was JJ Hardy. Folks, go Google him. The 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 stuff that he did was crazy, and he was arguing on behalf of this violent felon, criminal. Alleged felon, I don't know. Are you talking about the former acting chief of staff and concurrently acting, acting director <laughs> of of OMB and concurrently the acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and also concurrently the acting special envoy for Northern Ireland, Mick Mulvaney? He was also a man who, mind you folks, he, he was a social conservative, a Christian conservative in the same argument w- which we had. He said that the institutions are, are shaped by the people at the top of them leading them. So if you have somebody with a great character leading an institution, 
that's a great leader because the institution will take the character of that leader. So obviously this guy doesn't give a shit. It does not care about anything uh, but power for power's sake. But this is his tweet, John, and you ridiculed me. This is over the top though. More than half, here's the quote, more than half an hour and still almost entirely on script. If he had stayed on script in 2020, he would have won. It will be (laughs) interesting. It will be interesting to see how long he can do it now. And I don't mean just tonight. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is exactly the kind of analysis. This is the quality analysis that we get from CBS News contributors. And you were saying, you were saying, oh, the news media is going to treat this differently. We, we we saw the three cable media outlets just cover this thing almost entirely. Now we have you know contributors to to the broadcast news making these asinine statements. Uh, this is this is what this is what he does to people. Look. Like I said, sometimes there's a little bit of a buffer window. Like I was talking about the stage of denial. So the election results of 2022 are only just crystallizing this week. We have a little bit of time before the new paradigm fully sets in. Okay. And yes, there are remnants of our post 2016 reality that are still stubborn and sticking around. But that doesn't mean that history is just going to repeat itself precisely as it did the last time. I think that that's Trump is the weakest he has been in a decade right now. And you have fuck you have Milk Mulvaney coming out saying if he did this, he'd be president right now, and things are gonna be interesting. This is John, this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean it's De- Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. There are people in American public life who have <laughs> nothing to offer at all. Um substantively, analytically. Uh, Mick Mulvaney is certainly one of those people. And I, I'm sure there's quite a bit of buyer's remorse from any news outlets that, that have hired him as a contributor. We all remember his famous op-ed, what was it, in the Wall Street Journal saying, if, if Trump loses, he will concede gracefully. Oh, yes, he did write that. He He's just been wrong about everything. Not someone who is known for uh, cute uh, insights, even towards people that he's been in a room with. And I, what I think is kind of funny, and this has been pointed out by others, but the people who misunderstand Trump the most are the apologists in the outer ring of advisors. So the, the American public generally understand this person. Trump himself has, even though he lies about everything, has been quite upfront about what type of person he is. And um, the core group of people around him, you know, uh, the Cash Patels and these sorts, they all know who he is and they're on board with the project. But it's these <laughs> that that outer ring of GOP advisors like the Ryan's Priebus's and Mick Mulvaney's that have been in denial about the person that Trump is, even though they've met him and interacted with him, and they keep on getting everything wrong every single step of the way because Mark they're Meadows. just not willing. Yeah, Mark Meadows. Although he <laughs> he's a kind of a borderline case with that. The, the nihilistic inner ring at times. He crosses into that territory. Yeah, I think he might be the inner ring, but he's also just a, incompetent, you know? So it's yeah. like... Uh, but uh, cut, like Kudlow, Kudlow would be a, a great example of someone of that, <laughs> that outer ring of apologists who just don't get, you know, what Trump actually is. So these sorts of people, they, they have nothing to offer. They're, they, they're not good on policy issues. They're not good on political strategy. They can't analyze 
uh, news events accurately. They're just, uh, honestly, just a, it's a waste of time to, to listen to them or really have them around. And I've noticed that we have kind of generations and waves of leadership. And after each failure, the Republican Party has to kind of wipe it clean and bring in new faces. So when uh, George W. Bush was president, you know, there was a group of people who were the well-known uh, congressional leaders at the time, you know, the Hastert and uh, uh, Tom DeLay and so on. And then after George W. Bush and his political project became so unpopular and went into opposition mode against Obama, we saw new people who had been around, but weren't really that well known. So this is when we got Boehner, right, as the new GOP congressional leader. And his priorities were so different from what we heard that the GOP were trying to do when Bush was in office, right? And then Paul Ryan. And then when Trump came in, those people washed away and we had new faces. But we're kind of getting close to that stage now. So all these people that are so closely associated with the Trump era, now that it's been exposed as being so unpopular and really reviled among the broader American public, these people are going to have to wash away and we're going to have to get new look GOP. And so Mick Mulvaney, you know, some people will stick around. Some of the new faces will be people who actually were there before. But, um, you know, we're probably not going to have to hear anything from Mick Mulvaney in the near and midterm future. Yeah, I, I think that he's, um, thank God, I, I, I can't stand the man. <laughs> we're being a, you know, we're picking on, we're picking on poor Mick a little bit, but. I've had personal interactions with him. He's just a fraud through and through. Okay. <laughs> but no, I just want to say like there was a hope that we discussed earlier that Fox News would be kind of going in on him. And I'm just seeing a, a tweet from Ross Dotart of the New York Times saying uh, Pete Hegseth, who's a Fox News person, oh, and yeah. Mike Huckabee are both. And we vetted Pete Hegseth at the at the RNC for some stuff, um, which was scary because the guy is completely kooked. Yeah. I think we vetted him for like DOD or state's press secretary, which is a massive role if you think about it. Um, but anyways, apparently Fox News on Hannity's show, they were – and it was Huckabee and Hegseth – we're just praising Trump up and down. So it's going to be a hard drug for them to quit, even if the boss says, you know, Rupert Roop, Murdoch says, don't do it. Dude, I- I'm telling you, these Charles Cooks, Charles C.W. Cook said there's a collective action problem in the Republican Party. At the end of the day, you and I have skirted around this. I ultimately don't think that the Fox News does anything for any other reason except for money. And Trump will bring them tons of money. So they're going to end up elevating him again. Uh, and here we go. It's Let's go. We're off to the races, my friend. Yeah, lots of palace politics at Fox News. And just like you said, it's going to be informed by that audience demand. And that's, like we are saying in the previous program, what keeps happening. I mean, the, the key decision makers at Fox at the very top are eager to move on from Trump and they've often tested the waters to try to see if they have the opportunity to do so. And they weren't able to in some of the previous attempts. Uh, what, I, what I mean to say is they weren't able to and also carry their audience base with them because of course they're always able to, but they're not able to do both. They want to find an opportunity where they can keep the audience and move on from Trump, right? And so they've been much more patient with this Ron DeSantis project. They've been working on it for a couple years now. Um, it wasn't like after the 2020 election where they tried to 
get into action and defend the legitimacy of election results. Or after January 6th, where it was kind of spontaneous events they were reacting to and seeing if they had that opportunity. This is something that they've been working on for a long time. And it built into it, built into the whole concept of pushing DeSantis and cultivating DeSantis is all of these lessons from 2016 that we've been talking about. So I think that there's a very chance that they can pull it off. But we'll see. And just to leave everybody, Hannity was hosting the show. He is hosting the show. Just to leave everybody with a couple quotes, one from Pete Hegseth. This looks like Trump in as good a form as you have ever seen him. And then one from Mike Huckabee. So folks, keep this in mind after everything that John and I said. If he keeps on like this tonight, he is unbeatable in 2024. This was an absolutely brilliant speech. The best I have heard him give in a long time. Well, Mike Huckabee, someone with a lot of political cachet in the year 2022. Folks, please pray for the Republican Party in America and the folks at Fox News. Have a great night.